Morty here. I want to actually start with Jesse Waters because he's talking to Adam Carolla, who I think is pretty funny. Who doesn't want to send their kid there? Adam Carolla is author of Everything Reminds Me of Something, which is out today. He's also the host of the Adam Carolla Show. So, I mean, this is actually a real story, Carolla. Yeah. You know, I think what we ought to do is any parents who drop their kids off at that camp should immediately be arrested. Because <laughs> right. it could just be a sting operation to get horrible parents. <laughs> right. And I had this idea a long time ago. I wanted to put a big sign in front of the L.A. Coliseum and say, free cockfights for Raiders fans. <laughs> and anyone who showed up, we would just arrest them right. and get all the deadbeat dads off the street. This is a way to get the hippie moms off the street. <laughs> Do you see any of these counselors actually showing up on time, doing any like actual work? Because these don't strike me as the kind of people that are well-organized and that are ready to start their day at the crack of dawn. And also, there are people who don't believe in the monetary system, in payment. <laughs> like, who's going to pay? Why would you pay anarchists? Right. Like, is is it a barter system? Do you give them, like a, like, a Molotov cocktail in exchange for Jimmy going there for two uh, weeks? I got a 55-gallon drum of patchouli. <laughs> I'll give you that. You give me your amber beads. By the way, it's the name of my daughter, Amber Beads, and Amber we'll, Beads. We'll, we'll enroll her. We have to send a camera crew to this camp. We have yes. to verify camp that this is actually happening, because if this is actually happening, this is legit child abuse on behalf of the counselors and on behalf of the parents. Everything's yeah, and they're putting days. the Babylon Bee out of business and all <laughs> The Onion, like all these headlines would have been Onion or Babylon B right. 18 months ago, right? right. Not, not 25 years ago. It's no longer like going, oh, when my dad was a kid, this would, it wasn't, it was two years ago. This stuff would have sounded insane. It, but this is actually happening. Speaking of insane, you have double booked yourself and you are now on Gutfeld exclamation point tonight after right. you do this show. I predict... It's going to be excellent. <laughs> You're saying that show's not live? Those products. Okay, pretty, pretty and, uh, brave. And inflation's there. already bad. Okay, so I want to talk I'm about actually the spending more on hair products than Gallon and blogging. Gas. So, Golden Age of Blogging was about argument, right? So, the Golden Age of Substack and podcasts, it's largely about telling people what they want to hear. So, the way to make a successful podcast, the way to make a successful live stream is to tell people what they want to hear during the Golden Age of Blogging. It was all about argumentation, but it was filled with white privilege. Let's go to Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, looking back, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 turned out to be one of the most significant pieces of legislation ever passed by the U.S. Congress. Now, the people who wrote it knew that it would be, so naturally they spent a lot of time trying to convince everyone else that, in fact, it was no big deal. This is not a revolutionary bill, assured Lyndon Johnson when he signed it. The first tip that it was, in fact, a revolutionary bill. And then there was this. On the Senate floor, Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, the man who drove the bill, went out of his way to explain that the Democratic Party was absolutely not trying to replace the American population with more compliant foreign-born voters. No way. That's an insane conspiracy theory, he explained. Quote, this bill will not flood our cities with immigrants, Kennedy said. It will not upset the ethnic mix of our society. It will not relax the standards of admission. It will not cause American workers to lose their jobs. 
It's all bitterly amusing when you look back at it because, of course, that is precisely what this bill did. This bill changed America completely and forever. And the numbers show it. In the years since that legislation passed, the United States' total population exploded by 140 million people. You're seeing that chart on your screen right now. What direction does it point? Well, steadily upward. That's the population. Now, where did all those people come from? There's nothing wrong with more people. The question is, who are they and where do they come from? Well, what you're seeing is not the kind of organic growth that you would see in a healthy society that's become more prosperous and welcoming of families. It's not like people were so confident in the future they decided to have more kids. No, it's just the opposite, exactly the opposite of that. In fact, since Ted Kennedy's bill became law, birth rates among native-born Americans, which are the clearest possible measure of optimism in the future, those have dropped off a cliff. And you're seeing that chart on the screen now. It's the inverse of the first chart. This chart points downward. In 2020, the most recent year for which we have data, the overall fertility rate in the United States hit the lowest point ever recorded, and that was before COVID. This country is now well under the so-called replacement level. That means if we continue on this trajectory, and no one's trying to take us off this trajectory, eventually there'll be no more native-born Americans. So you put these two graphs together, and what do they show you? Well, they show you a number of things, but here's the main one. Sometime around 1965, our leaders stopped trying to make the United States a hospitable place for American citizens, their constituents, to have their own families. That used to be considered the central task of leadership, perpetuating the population. If people are happy and confident, they'll have kids. They're vested in the society, and if they're not, they won't. That was their job. So they stopped doing it, and instead they just imported new people. That's literally what happened. Now, you're not allowed to point this out, of course. The media become absolutely hysterical when you do because it's so obviously true. What's interesting is that if something like this happened in any other country, say in China or Japan or Nigeria, the populations of those countries would likely revolt because you can't do that. The leaders of a country can't change the population of the country, especially in a democracy, without the consent of the existing population. So if those populations in, say, Nigeria, for example, revolted, the New York Times would be deeply sympathetic to their outrage. Again, you can't just replace the electorate because you didn't like the last election outcomes. That would be the definition of undermining democracy, changing the voters. But when it happens in this country, there is mandatory media-enforced silence. And in fact, if you notice it's happening, it's your fault. You're immoral. You're a racist. But it has nothing to do with race. It's about change, and it's absolutely real. The majority of population growth since 1965 has come from immigration, not from Americans having more kids. In 1965, the number of permanent illegal migrants in this country from Latin America was essentially zero. There were migrant farm workers, but there were no huge populations of people living here illegally. By 2008, that number had grown to perhaps 20 million people. They lied about it, but the best estimates suggest it was tens of millions. And then came Joe Biden. Joe Biden accelerated that sad trend beyond what anyone thought was possible. The foreign-born population is now growing by 132,000 people every month. That's more than triple the average high under previous administrations. It's double Barack Obama's highest totals. According to AEI scholar Mark Perry, we can expect over 9 million new illegal aliens by the end of Joe Biden's first term. Nothing like this has ever happened in this or maybe any other country ever. 
And it's happening for one reason. It's not natural. It's the product of a policy choice. Joe Biden promised amnesty to anyone who makes it across our border. So in 2019, for example, the Trump administration criminally prosecuted 110,000 illegal migrants for violating immigration law. Not that they were bad people. Some of them were great people. But you're not allowed to go into someone else's country without permission. That's what a law is. And if you ignore the law, you are no longer a real country. You're something less than that. You're a failed state. So you have to enforce the law, including immigration law. But Joe Biden stopped doing it. Last year, Joe Biden prosecuted fewer than 3,000 total. That's according to DHS data obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. That's a drop of nearly 98%. So naturally, people are coming. Because why wouldn't you want to move to the United States? Knowing that when you get here, you will be treated like someone who deserves to be here and given every possible public benefit. You'd be crazy not to come. And so they are in massive numbers. And then traveling, often at public expense, paid for by you without your knowledge, throughout the United States. What's one border agent explain what exactly is happening? DPS officers have been assisting Border Patrol under Operation Lone Star for 16 months. In that time, they've apprehended 279,000 undocumented migrants, arrested 17,000 criminals, and seized nearly 320 million lethal doses of fentanyl. Every state has become a border state because all these individuals that are coming across, aside from the families, the single adults, the gotaways, the drugs that are coming in are going to other states. They're not staying in Texas. So that's Mexico over there, so they'll come across. They'll bring them across on a raft. They usually have 30, 40 you know, immigrants on these rafts. So they're bringing them across. They know where to drop them off, and they know where to walk. So here's another thing that's changed since 1965, along with our population. Politicians no longer feel they need to pretend, partly because the population is so different. You've got a lot more people with permanent jobs in American politics. So unlike Lyndon Johnson, Joe Biden didn't pretend that his goal was not to change the population. He said it out loud. During the campaign, Biden referred to illegal immigration as a gift. Watch. Guess what? They're the reason why the legal as well as undocumented. They're the reason why our society is functioning. The reason why our economy is growing. We don't talk about that. We stand up and act like it's a burden. It is not a burden. It's a gift. It's a gift, says a man who has worked in a public job his entire life, who's never had a real job ever, is lecturing you about the economy and how it works, as if he knows. By the way, in that tape, Joe Biden was so senile that his wife and his handlers gave him drugs before that interview, that interview that you just saw. So that's the guy telling you about the economic benefits of illegal immigration. Now, mostly you're not supposed to notice that that conversation even took place, just like you're not supposed to notice when the New York Times prints an op-ed called, We Can Replace Them, because that's a dangerous conspiracy theory. What are you, Alex Jones? No, we just watch carefully. Not even that carefully. They say it constantly. The Great Replacement? Yeah, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's their electoral strategy. And we know that because they say it all the time. Here's some examples. Blue Wave is African-American. Yeah. It's white, it's Latino, it's Asian Pacific Islander. Yes. It is made up of those who've been told that they are not worthy of being here. Yes. It is comprised of those who are documented 
documented and undocumented. In a couple of presidential cycles, you'll be on election night. You'll be announcing that we're calling the 38 electoral votes of Texas for the Democratic nominee for president. It's changing. It's going to become a purple state and then a blue state because of the demographics. The demographics of America are not on the side of the Republican Party. The new voters in this country are moving away from them. And instead, they're moving to be independents or to even vote on the other side. An unrelenting stream of immigration, nonstop, nonstop. Folks like me who were Caucasian of European descent for the first time in 2017 will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America from then and on will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. So how is that a source of our strength? He, he never explained. So clearly it's the source of the Democratic Party's strength. They believe, though actually that plan might not work out for them, since a lot of the people arriving may not be sympathetic to Joe Biden, who possibly could be. But electoral politics are really secondary to the real concern, which is the stability of the country. So the problem with what the Democratic Party is doing right now is not simply that it helps the Democratic Party, though we think that's bad. The problem is that they're doing it way too fast. This is too much change at once for any society ever at any point in history. No society can metabolize this many new people and stay stable especially not now in this specific moment, because two unprecedented waves of human migration, you have to add, let's see, a collapsing economy, inflation, food shortages, skyrocketing housing prices, falling wages, the trauma of two and a half years of COVID, the manufactured racial strife you saw Joe Biden himself encouraging. You put all that together and you have the most volatile possible mix of social factors. So into that, you throw millions of brand new people who have no connection to America whatsoever, people who broke our laws to get here, who don't speak our language, who have no idea what the U.S. Constitution says and don't care. And what do you have when you put all of that together? You have a recipe for social collapse. This is why no sane government would ever do this. The Chinese government would never consider doing this. Even corrupt, dumb governments that can't even keep a national airline flying would never do something like this to their own countries because they don't want their own countries to collapse. And it's not an attack on the people coming here, by the way, some of whom are legitimately great people and want to be here for the right reasons. The problem is the volume. No country can withstand what we're going through right now. And in our specific case, it turns out that a lot of the people coming are not ready to participate in a democracy. A huge percentage of the migrants crossing the border today are functionally illiterate. According to the Center for Immigration Studies, 41% of immigrants score at or below the lowest level of English literacy, a level variously described as below basic or functionally illiterate. Now, add to this the problems that American-born people are having with English after two years of COVID and suspended education and a life spent staring into a screen. What does that look like? A lot of people who are moving here are not becoming assimilated. And we know that because many haven't learned English after living here for years. The same study found that 
of Hispanic immigrants do not develop English proficiency even after 15 years of living in the United States. That means around 5 million migrants became citizens without even being able to speak our language. Once again, not an attack on them, an attack on the people running the country. This could capsize the United States. This is a huge, sprawling country with a massive population. So the question from day one has always been, what holds everyone together? What is the one thing we all have in common? It's not an ethnic group. It's not a shared history. Now it's not a language. So what is it? Well, in the absence of glue, things break apart. That's a physics principle. So no one who cared about the future of this country would do this to the country. It is truly insanity. And yet the Biden administration is trying to make it worse, working hard to make it worse. Fox News is reporting tonight that the administration awarded a $172 million grant to a George Soros-linked organization which exists to, quote, help young border crossers avoid deportation. Now, why is some foreign-born billionaire allowed to change our country fundamentally? That's the big question. Here are the specifics. This organization is called the Vera Institute for Justice, and it stands to gain a billion dollars in federal money by the end of the contract, just to subvert our laws. Now, the catch is that no one verifies whether the people crossing the border are actually minors. Right? You can't know who they are. By definition, they're here illegally. And after 9-11, didn't we care about the authenticity of documents? Didn't we have a real ID act? But we don't know how old they are. And that's how 24-year-old Medina Uloa was able to enter this country and murder a father of four in the backyard of his house in Florida in October. He posed as a child so that Joe Biden would fly him at your expense to Jacksonville in the middle of the night. So courtesy of the Biden administration, unaccompanied minors like Medina Uloa are also arriving in New York, in Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arizona, and many other places. According, for example, to 12 News in Phoenix, representatives for Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport reported that hundreds of migrants showed up recently with no booked tickets. Roughly three to 400 refugees have arrived every single day by bus in recent months. So why are all of these illegal aliens arriving in Phoenix? Well, many of them were dropped off by a nonprofit called RCBH, which brags it's helped nearly 20,000 illegal aliens released by immigration authorities without charges moving all over the country. And that's where it's happening, all over the country. In Brownsville, Texas, Fox News observed buses contracted by the Biden administration dropping off dozens of male migrants at a parking garage. Our reporters witnessed those migrants go into an unmarked office, then get picked up by taxi cabs and driven to the airport. None of them were children. Commercial airline pilots right now are being told to fly these people all over the country. We spoke to a pilot who's doing it every day, and we're quoting, we are breaking the law, transporting illegals, many of whom are unaccompanied minors. Why is this continuing? Because neither party is interested in stopping it. On this question, as on foreign policy, there's only one party, the Uniparty, and it's aligned against your most basic interests, no matter what color you are, by the way. Instead, both parties are finding new ways to give American jobs to foreign-born applicants. 62 Republicans just joined to their eternal shame with almost every single Democrat in the House to pass the National Defense Bill. Now, tucked away in that $840 billion piece of legislation is a plan to give away even more American jobs to foreign workers, as if we need this now. So now the children of H-1B visa workers will receive citizenship because their parents took jobs in this country? Huh? How does that work exactly? Shut up! Racist. Again, it's not about race. It's about economics and social cohesion, both of which they're destroying. 
Now, according to our Congress, fewer jobs for Americans somehow makes this country safer. That's been their plan since 1965, and since 1965, both parties have supported it. Stephen Miller does not support it. He worked in the Trump White House for four years, where he worked very hard to stop this in the end unsuccessfully, but he is still fighting. He's the founder of America First Legal. He joins us tonight. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for coming on. So it's hilarious if you think about the amount of energy they spend shouting at anyone who notices the numbers. The Great Replacement Theory, that's racist. Again, I would argue race has nothing to do with this. The numbers tell a very clear story. Americans are not replacing themselves naturally by having children in a country that's increasingly hostile to children and immigration is making up the difference. Why don't we have a right to be mad about that? Well, I think first a bit of history is in order here. What many Americans may not realize is that during the period of time when the great American middle class was born, during the Eisenhower era, when we had rapid middle class growth, rapid increase in our quality of living, rapid increase in our wages, and when immigrant and U.S.-born Americans alike saw a huge increase in their living standards, there was net negative immigration into this country. In other words, the number of immigrants leaving was greater than the number of immigrants coming every single year to the point where we had 14 million immigrants in 1920. By 1965, we had fewer than 10 million immigrants. During that same time period, our population doubled from American families having kids. Now, since 1965, the Ted Kennedy rewrite and Joe Biden's open borders... The vast majority of our population growth is solely people coming here from foreign countries. And as you mentioned, you cannot have social cohesion that way. Los Angeles is more than one-third foreign-born. New York City is more than one-third foreign-born. San Francisco is more than one-third foreign-born. One in four kids, this is amazing, in the whole country, one in four kids in the whole country has a foreign-born parent. It is not in their interest or ours to keep adding more and more and more and more immigrants so there can't be any cohesion. There cannot be social trust. There cannot be civic bonding. There cannot be a shared culture, a shared language, a shared education, a shared experience, and a shared pathway to success. We are eroding and destroying all of these things by unending migration. What's so scary is nobody cares about social cohesion until the crisis hits, until, say, the economy tanks, and there's just not enough to go around, at which point it becomes the thing that stands between you and actual chaos. Are they not thinking trust this through? Trust is all no? you have. That's In exactly that situation, right. trust is all you have. If there's an attack and we lose our power, we lose our water, we lose our infrastructure, we lose our electricity, what keeps us from riots and looting and from right. madness? It's trust. It's the ability to know that the people that you are living in the community with will take care of each other and protect each other. And uncontrolled migration makes us a nation of strangers. So again, I don't care where you're born. No matter where you're from, if you're living here today, it's in your interest to turn off the spigot tomorrow. I think that's a really smart point. And you're seeing a lot of people, immigrants even, arriving in that same conclusion. Exactly. right. Stephen Miller, great to see you tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we spend a lot of time, probably too much time, talking about Congress's very own Instagram influencer, Sandy Cortez of Westchester. It turns out she's probably the most oppressed member of Congress ever. She was shackled by police today in a way that's never been done before, with imaginary shackles that didn't even exist, but that didn't make her less shackled. Having trouble picturing this? We have the video. Straight ahead. 
Yeah, so if you travel to Australia or England or, or France or any, any European country or any East Asian country, Korea, China, Japan, the lack of social cohesion and social trust in, in America is dramatic. Right, so I was recently in Sydney, and this is the fourth safest city in the world. There's virtually no crime in Sydney. There's virtually no crime in in all of Australia. You go to England, and they certainly struggle with crime, but overall, far more social trust, far more social cohesion between the English and the Americans, and it's always been that way. It's just really gotten bad in America since the 1965 Immigration Act, and then. Uh, throughout Europe, forget about it, far more social cohesion and social trust, and then infinitely more in Germany and in Eastern Europe and in Japan and China and, and Korea, just n no comparison. So why exactly is America better off for this flood of immigrants? It, it clearly isn't. Now, I, I don't agree with the great replacement theory, so I pretty much agreed with everything Tucker Carlson was talking about there. But Native Americans are not, not on the trajectory to be wiped out, all right? So people are not literally being replaced. It's that they are being, their political influence is being diluted and their wages are being driven down. So wages are essentially decided by what's the available workforce, all right? So the more immigrants you allow in, then you have more supply of labor and that drives down wage rates for native-born Americans. Also, the more immigrants you allow in, then the more demand there is for housing. So life becomes more expensive for native-born Americans and their wages, particularly for the least skilled, just stay flat. So construction wages in Los Angeles have been flat for 60 years, right? For 60 years, construction wages in Los Angeles have been flat as opposed to a country like Australia, which is fairly restrictive about who they allow in. And so Australia is the best place in the world to be an average bloke, to quote Steve Saylor, right? Pretty good uh, wages in, in Australia. In, in Australia also, since the early 1970s, the major parties have agreed not to campaign and not to make political the issue of immigration. Right, that, that's been a de facto arrangement among the major parties for about 50 years in Australia, essentially been the same in America. All right, Immigration has not been a major issue of political contestation until Donald Trump arrived on the scene. And why exactly is it a good thing for a country primarily filled with people who believe in universal morality, that there's one moral standard for everyone? Why exactly... Are these people benefited from the massive importation of people who practice dual morality, meaning one morality for how they treat their in-group and a much more relaxed morality for how they treat out-groups. So pretty much everybody in the world practices dual morality except for those from Northern Europe. So Anglo-Saxons, people from Northern Europe, right? they take universal morality for granted. It's not that they are such excessively righteous people, but there was simply no concept in my Protestant upbringing that it was okay to treat outsiders any differently than you treat members of your group, right? There was no concept of outsiders being subhuman. There was, there was no concept that it was okay to rip off outsiders 
to like steal the inflatable devices under your your plane seat uh, so if you're going to cheat on taxes right you cheated on your taxes but there was no concept that this was okay there, there was no concept people didn't boast about ripping off outsiders people didn't talk about how people outside your group are not human that they don't matter that you can just do absolutely anything you want to them right this this idea was basically unknown in my my anglo protestant uh, upbringing and so you then flood a country of people who have universal morality with people who practice dual morality and you destroy social cohesion and social trust because people with universal morality get outcompeted. Update tonight on one of the worst stories we've seen in a long time, the story of Jose Alba, 61 years old, a Dominican immigrant, working late Friday night in a bodega in Harlem when an ex-con comes in in a dispute over shoplifting and violently assaults him. In self-defense, Alba stabbed the man and killed him. So then the Soros-backed DA in New York, Alvin Bragg, charged Jose Alba with murder and sent him to jail on hundreds of thousands of dollars in bail. Well, as we said, there's been a major update in that case tonight, and our own Kevin Cork has it for us. Hey, Kevin. Evening, Tucker. An incredible story. Frankly, as critics would point out, it took him long enough. But finally, New York City's DA, Alvin Bragg, has dropped charges against that bodega worker by the name of Jose Alba. Now, critics have been on this story, Tucker, from the very beginning and with good reason. You see, he was simply working at the bodega in New York when, after a dispute, he became the victim of a vicious attack from which he defended himself, resulting in the stabbing death of his assailant. A response that clearly, based on the video evidence, was not what Alba had in mind. Oh, Papa, what's up with you? I don't want to promo, Papa. Oh, what's wrong with you? I know two and a half. Why you snatch anything Alba said, I don't want no problem. I don't want a problem. Well, he got plenty of it when Austin Simon cornered him and attacked him. Alba was also attacked by Simon's girlfriend. Now, for obviously defending himself, he was later sent over to Rikers before advocates finally stepped in on his behalf. Meanwhile, in moving to dismiss the case, Bragg conceded only that his office couldn't prove that the defendant was not justified in his use of deadly physical force, which begs the question, what on earth took him two weeks to figure that out? Tucker? Well, that's a great question. One of many. Yeah. Kevin, the great Kevin Cork. Thanks so much for that. You bet. So today, several of the feistier members of Congress, that would include Sandy Cortez and Ilhan Omar, both famous on Instagram, decide to block traffic in front of the Supreme Court because girl power means blocking traffic. And that's when police officers did something they've never done before. Those mean cops put both Sandy Cortez and Ilhan Omar in invisible handcuffs and led them away with their hands behind their back. You're seeing those images on the screen right now. Now, several media outlets picked up these images as proof that Sandy Cortez and Ilhan Omar are deeply oppressed. For Sandy Cortez, the trauma was real. Totally. It was her lived experience. She was wearing a coat in 90 degree heat. It's just the latest harrowing tale of Sandy Cortez's tenure in Congress, her life since Boston University. You may recall that nearly a year and a half ago, she almost died. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has given a harrowing account of her experience on January 6th. A harrowing and emotional account of what happened to her during the Capitol riot. It's one of the most harrowing accounts so far. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tell that harrowing story. The harrowing story of how she hid from attackers during the Capitol riot. Boom, boom, boom. Disclosing new harrowing details. 
<laughs> being Casey Hunt looking right into the camera. Well, harrowing. It's very harrowing. Your average television host has a list of like 19 approved words and they must read for them. And that day, harrowing was at the top of the list. Vince Colonnese reads whatever words he wants because he's a free thinker. He's a very popular radio show host in Washington. He joins us tonight to assess the oppression of Sandy Cortez. Can you believe, Vince, they arrest her without handcuffs? That's how powerful white supremacy is in Washington, D.C. It's remarkable. And like her demand to be mistreated was so great that she created invisible handcuffs for herself. And then a moment later, she raises her fist in solidarity with the crowd (laughs) as if she's some sort of like brave civil rights activist. And then, boom, the hand goes right back behind the back again, back into the handcuffs, like some sort of David Blaine trick. She's incredible. And I actually feel the only person I feel bad here for Ilhan Omar, because at least Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got a cap police officer to play along and like walk along with her. Ilhan Omar had to trail like 10 feet back and didn't even have an officer next to her. And yet she had invisible handcuffs on as well and was dutifully following along. So uh, the two play. They both were taken to an invisible Robben Island where they're going to be held for uh, some (laughs) number of decades. I got to ask, just in the case, uh, since you're in Washington, you cover the news there, unlike us. um, Has Sandy Cortez, who's constantly fighting the power, ever fought any actual power? Like, has she ever criticized, say, I don't know, the CIA or Raytheon or Google? Or is it always like local cops? No, no, she's never fought any meaningful power. In fact, this is a good, this this case today is exactly what she is. The phrase is a slacktivist, just like a lazy person who doesn't actually do anything yeah. to improve anybody else's life except her own. She is in lockstep with corporate America. She has the same abortion yeah. policies as Citibank and doesn't help Amazon workers in her own area unionize. <laughs> and then she wants credit for it. And they say, yeah, no, thanks. We don't want you coming around. You were too busy Instagram storying your perusal through your uh, garbage disposal. I think you're just hitting on her. I think that's what's really going on. Yeah, that's it. That's the key. (laughs) The great Vince Colonnades from Washington. Thank you. Thanks, Tucker. So you hate to say it. The greatest thing about America was the justice system was pretty clean. You know, if you're going to be tried in any court in the world, America was the court is the court of first choice. But there are now two standards of justice. And that's never been more clear than with the recent treatment of a new set of insurrectionists who happen to have fashionable political views. So they can trespass inside the Capitol all they want, it turns out. We've got details after the break. I remember when I served on a jury in Compton and there was a black young male defendant who blood tests had shown he was very clearly intoxicated when he was driving. But the black members of the jury said, no, we can't have another black man in in prison. We can't have another black man get punished by the system. So they wouldn't vote to convict and I wouldn't vote to let him off. So we ended up with with a hung jury. But when you have an increasingly diverse population that is primarily loyal to its own in-group and not the nation itself, then all sorts of institutions that were designed for Anglo-Saxons right, stop working as well. Now, some people are a great fit for Anglo-Saxon institutions. You don't have to be Anglo-Saxon to be a great fit for Anglo-Saxon institutions like the jury. Right, like the the rule of law, like uh, representative democracy. But there are plenty of groups, including some Jewish immigrants who would not vote on on a jury to convict any Jew accused of a crime. And so other strongly identifying in groups, right, some of them just simply will will pervert the course of justice in a jury trial to prefer their own in group that destroys social trust, social cohesion. It's destroying our society, 
all right? And there's you come back to America after being abroad and you notice that you're being treated like the enemy, all right, by the people who process you as you get off the plane and come back to the country. As you get on a plane to fly in America, you're treated as the enemy. It's a very different situation to what it was prior to the, the 1970s. When you interact with the government, you frequently feel like you're being treated as the enemy. And when you get outside of your bubble in America, very likely you'll have very little in common with the people around you in Los Angeles. Very likely you won't even speak the same language if you don't speak Spanish. Right? So half the population in LA primarily speaks Spanish. So half the population in LA basically can't speak to the other half of the population. I remember we had our brain dead, brain dead mayor, Antonio Villaragosa. He was speaking at Sinai Temple in Westwood one Friday night, and he encouraged us to speak to someone who doesn't speak our language. Now, I did do that. I was a leader in that. I dated a woman from Venezuela who did not speak English. And my Spanish, even though it took three years of it in school, my, my, my Spanish was basically limited to the phrase, Es muy necesario. Es muy necesario. And so I, I was, I was dating, all right, for, for about a month, a woman who didn't speak English. We, we found other ways to communicate how we, we felt about each other. But generally speaking, it's quite difficult to talk to someone who doesn't speak your language. And when it comes to interacting with people that we don't know, all right, we're very quick to just cut people off. I mean, we, we don't have an infinite amount of psychological and physical resources to welcome, you know, strangers into our life. So if the interaction isn't going smoothly, all right, if you don't have good reason to believe that you can build something out of this interaction, you're only going to interact with strangers purely on the basis of the functionality of that interaction. As opposed to in Australia, there's just a sense of mateship. Oh, okay, hey, mate, like, wow, what was that loud noise? Or look at that ripper wave. Or how about what we did to the palms last night and the cricket? All right, there was just that easy camaraderie. And you also feel that when you go to an Orthodox synagogue or anytime you're participating with your in-group, let's say you go to a singles event for your in-group, and you're likely to have a lot in common with other members of your in-group. Right? You, you have a similar ethic, a similar way of life. You have similar practices. You have similar foods, right? you have similar culture, similar history, similar outlook on life, similar commitments. You likely know a lot of people in common. And so you're much more likely to let your guard down and open yourself up to making genuine connections with people. But if uh, you have a hard time understanding the other person or they don't get your sense of humor, you don't have common points of reference, then you're likely to make like a turtle, kind of pull your head in, right? just protect yourself when you're not with your in-group. And you'll stay home, you'll watch more TV, you'll be less likely to volunteer because people are going to volunteer to help people who aren't like them. Generally speaking, people are primarily interested in helping their own group. They're not primarily interested in helping strangers. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. called Royce Lambert, been around a long time, sentenced a 69-year-old grandmother from Idaho to 60 days in prison. Now, the elderly woman is called Pam Hemphill, and she's battling breast cancer. So what did she do to deserve prison? 
Well, she's not a rapist or an illegal alien. She'd be fine. No. Her crime, according to the U.S. attorney in D.C., was, quote, parading inside the Capitol building on January 6th. So she walked around without authorization. So now she's going to jail while facing cancer at almost 70. There's no way to spin that. That's completely outrageous. Pam Hempel is not a risk to anyone. Now, at the sentencing, Judge Lamberth admitted he wanted to make an example out of this elderly woman. Why? Because he was frustrated that a defendant in a separate case made statements that were, quote, embarrassing to me. <laughs> that actually happened. And therefore, because he was embarrassed by somebody else, Lamberth decided to take it out on this elderly woman. And that's horrible. That's not justice. It's the opposite. And it gets worse. At the same time this was happening, the U.S. DC attorney for D.C., same point, they were sending an elderly cancer patient to jail. This same U.S. attorney's office announced that they were dropping charges against nine members of Stephen Colbert's production crew. Now, Capitol Police had caught this group of producers trespassing inside the Longworth House office building on the evening of Thursday, June 16th. We brought it to you when it happened. So they were walking around the Capitol complex without authorization. Parading, that's a crime. Now, Capitol Police had warned Colbert's producers that they were in a restricted area, but they ignored the warning from police. They returned anyway with the help of several members of Congress. That would include Adam Schiff and Jake Auchincloss. But the other day, the U.S. attorney for D.C., a Biden appointee called Matthew Graves, said that they're allowed to walk with no charges. So here are the new rules. If you're a regime propagandist, you can do whatever you want. You can trespass in the Capitol. You won't be charged by Joe Biden's prosecutor. But if you're an elderly cancer patient who votes the wrong way, you go to prison. Those are two standards, one justice system. That's corruption. Speaking of corruption, investigative reporter Charlie LaDuff just reported on a troubling story out of Michigan. Tracy Kornack, the treasurer of the state Democratic Party there and a close friend of the current governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is accused of trying to defraud a brain-damaged elderly woman in a nursing home. Charlie Duff is on this. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, host of the No BS News Hour with Charlie Duff, which indeed has no BS in it. He joins us tonight. Charlie, what, as usual, you know, you're the only person working in the media in Michigan anymore. Tell us the outlines of the story, if you would. Okay, real simple. Kornack, uh, it appears her daughter is giving care to this brain-damaged woman. The insurance company only wants to pay her 12 bucks because she's a babysitter, not a health professional. So to get the $30 an hour, Kornack concocted some invoices. She took the nurse's home's tax ID. She told the insurance company that her daughter was hired by the nursing home, and they used timesheets from another health care provider. Put it all together, and about $50,000 was billed. The check comes into the nursing home, and I have the text. The, the nursing home says, what's the meaning of this? She goes, like, just cash it. I'll give you 10%. That's that. Well, that, I mean, that's, you know, I'm assuming what you're saying is true. You say you have the documents that prove yes. it. How can she continue to be the treasurer for the Democratic Party? That's funny because the Democrats haven't called me back. I've given them good time. Now, the attorney general tells me they're looking into it. So, Madam Tucker and I... We like to help our public officials do a good job. So I'm going to whisper to you, subpoena the text messages, the emails, the, the electronic login, because your daughter's name doesn't appear like she ever logged in. 
and that bank check that was cut and sent over state lines, I think that has some legal ramifications. But I doubt it, Tucker, because Karnak was on the transition team of Nestle. Karnak was the campaign manager of uh, Michigan Supreme Court Justice uh, Bridget McCormick. Very powerful. It couldn't come at a worse time because they're trying to make us forget how they manhandled and abused and ignored the nursing homes. And now you got this. Wait, so Nestle will be Dana Nestle. That's the attorney general, the highly partisan attorney general of Michigan. This woman who Nestle says she's looking into was on Nestle's transition team? Indeed. And I should note that when all this hinky dinky stuff was going on with the insurance, the woman was five months behind on a room and board and Karnak has power of attorney over her life. Just, you know what I mean? It, like they're I not do. paying her commissary, her room and board. It's freaking outrageous. And it's time for you to go, because if you don't, I'm going to put all the stuff online. You know, I'm not a poster boy Republican. Right, man. We know that. I get along with you. You get along with me. I just want what's right. And I want all the people in Heather Hills nursing home. Shout out. We care about you. You're not forgotten. There was a time when local media behaved a lot like Charlie Duff behaves, keeping people in check through reporting. Uh, but you're the last one in your state. I appreciate you coming on. Nobody Charlie followed Duff. up. Thanks, man. No, thank you. So you hear a lot about the violent insurrection of January 6th, but actually there was a violent insurrection just a few months before. Those would be the BLM riots that murdered more than two dozen Americans. One of the Americans who was killed during those riots was police captain David Dorn. More than two years later, his killer is finally on trial. David Dorn's widow joins us after the break to assess. Okay, so what was the golden age of blogging? It was late 2001 to about 2005. And so starting about 2006, we had the, the rise of social media. But I remember after the 9-11 attack, you had the development of all these war bloggers like uh, Matt Welch and Ken Lane and all these people who weren't otherwise terribly interested in foreign policy, certainly not interested in going to war. But there was the rise of the war bloggers. So Andrew Sullivan, Matt Drudge, uh, Mickey Kaus, uh, these were some of the, the top bloggers during during that time period. And blogging then was much higher IQ than vlogging because it's much more demanding to write rather than to speak. Also, blogging was primarily about argumentation. So vlogging is primarily about speaking to a particular audience and giving them what they want. So podcasts are primarily about speaking to a particular audience, giving it what it wants. So Joe Rogan, right, his podcast wants, you know, the equivalent of flat earth, you know, conspiracy theories, right? It's like a 100 IQ audience, right, wanting stuff about how the elites are wrong. And the same with, with Tim Pool. And so podcasters have fractured the audience into the, their little niche. So if you go to J.F. Garapee, for as long as I've known J.F. Garapee since the end, beginning of 2018, he reliably gives like the white nationalist perspective to, to the extent that uh, social media rules allow him to. And he doesn't really brook any, any criticism, substantial criticism of his audience. All right. He gives his audience consistently what he wants. He's been captured by his audience uh, willingly. I, I'm sure he probably thought it through to sustain an audience. You have to come back and give them what they want. And so he reads one 
you know, ludicrous study about vaccines that, that argue that vaccines are dangerous, and he just immediately accepts it because that's what his anti-establishment audience wants to hear. So when blogging was big, argumentation was big, and it meant right and left frequently arguing with each other, right? But people don't generally speaking get into trouble for what they say on podcasts, right? It's much more ephemeral compared to blogs. So here's an excellent conversation about the golden age of blogging. Robert Wright, center-left, talking to Ross Douthat, who's center-right. We were, we were pioneers who somehow failed to failed to fully catch. We were like the guys, you know, we, we were at Sutter's Creek before they started finding the gold in the water, <laughs> something something like that. But no, it's, it was, it's a distinct honor. Are you um, suggesting the blogging on TV did not become a jo- uh, global media juggernaut? As I'm, was I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I, just, I just feel like there's an alternative timeline where you, you know, you are the the Joe Rogan um of of uh of our times. Not that being the Bob Wright of our times isn't probably better, but you know. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh Robert Wright, uh, for all his weaknesses, and I find him very annoying, very difficult to listen to, because he's so rude and so constantly interrupting people, but he's still speaking to a, an audience with an average IQ of around 120. So a show that's aimed at an average IQ of 120 it's never going to have the popularity of a moronic show such as Joe Rogan. And uh, there's a good correction in the chat. That's not really true. JF Garapi is a sincere libertarian. Eventually, no one in the alt-right is a libertarian. That's a good point. Thank you for that correction. And that's why I think so much clearer and you think so much clearer when you think socially. I say something and I recognize as soon as you make that point that I was wrong. Right? JF Garapi is a libertarian and a white nationalist, which makes him unique in the world of, of white nationalism. Now, my, my larger point about audience capture, JF doesn't shake things up and uh, particularly challenge his audience. He tells them what they want to hear. So while blogging was more about argumentation, uh, vlogging has become much more about speaking to a particular audience. So let's go to that discussion. If, if I said nothing else by way of a, a conversational cue beyond what I've said, just kind of differences between 2006 and now in politics and or technology, what is the first thing that would spring to mind? Well, I mean, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about sort of blogging heads specifically. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, if you, it's not unrelated because not this unrelated. was the I mean, golden I mean, age I, of blogging back then. Yeah, I would I would say that blogging heads was sort of an extension of a media atmosphere that was sort of you know, much more, in a certain way, much more argumentative than the media atmosphere we've had for the for the last five years or so. In, um, in, the, in the good sense of mostly, argument. mostly in the. I mean, some people would say in the bad. I would say in the good sense mm. because I like to argue and argue, especially with people who disagree with me. I think I think that what 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 that era had, I think, was a lot of a lot of context where people were sort of engaging at length with ideas that they really, really strongly disagreed with. Um, and that, that was sort of, that was what blogging itself sort of lent itself to, like the, the, to the extent there was an economics of blogging, right? It was driven by getting your, you know, sort of attacking someone at length, quoting them at length, and then attacking them at length and getting them to attack you back and sort of, cre- but sort of creating this, this cycle of, of argumentation that in theory drove, drove your audience. Um, and then, you know, blogging heads didn't always have people who disagreed, but I feel like usually 
you know, the ones I remember were most likely to be, say, you know, me and Matt Iglesias arguing a, whatever the a sort of left versus right um, debate mm-hmm. was was back then. Um, and, I, and certainly, I think the dynamics of social media radically changed that and created an environment where the incentives were for sort of clusters of clusters of agreement rather than sort of, right. you know, and, 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 dis- and disagreement with what is was often is often a caricature. Of right. opposing- oh, yeah, you would still, you know, I mean, on social media, you you need the you need the bad tweet. Right. Like you, you, right. you need you need like the worst tweet of all the tweets generated by the other side. <laughs> right. But but yeah, there was no there's there's there was a premium on, you know, giving the impression that you were taking the other person's argument seriously in yeah. that, you know, call it 2001 to 2010 media environment that sort of diminished. And and then you have, you know, these these zones outside of social media now, both podcasting and to some extent Substack. Um, that in certain ways recreate some of the virtues of that world, right? Like podcasting is much more respectful than social media. People are, mm-hmm. interestingly, this is something my colleague Michelle Goldberg pointed out when we were podcasting together. You're much less likely to get sort of canceled off something you say on a podcast. You it's know, famous last words, it does happen, right? But um, then something you say on Twitter, right? Like pod- podcasting, it's sort of like long form conversation um, mm-hmm. doesn't lend itself to cancellation in the same way. And then okay. Substack is obviously a literal refuge for that. For yeah. the canceled, but neither of them, you know, po- po- the most successful podcasts are not argumentative. I think they're sort of zones of mild right disagreement. Our yeah. podcast that we ran at the time, the argument sort of tried to tried to be argumentative, but that's not sort of the normal podcasting mode. And yeah, well, the you, the you and Michelle Substack Goldberg to be about because you're 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 trying to drive pain. Um, okay. I, I was just, I may, it Uh-oh. sounds like maybe there's a time, time lag. Uh, I'm not sure, but, but I was just going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even there, there's less premium on sort of sustained long form disagreement, I think, to some extent. I mean, it, it does, it does exist, but it's, it's, it's different from, it, it's not like the blogosphere where you are trying to draw traffic from your, you know, your enemies and critics, basically. That's, that's not the, the, the Substack model. No. And there's certainly, I mean, there, there are a lot of, Preaching to the Choir podcast, I mean, when you think of the most monetarily successful, I mean, I think the New York Times platform is just kind of sui generis. A big media platform, I, I think, tends to use the podcast products and so on tend to be an extension of the platform itself in spirit. The, um, but, but in terms of like independently hugely successful podcasts, I mean, you get like Chapo Trap House, you know, real preaching to the choir uh, podcasts that don't involve a lot of um, serious argument. The... Uh, uh, but it's interesting that uh, I mean I I don't think we're idealizing the golden age of blogging. The um, there really was a moment there where there were ecosystems that were kind of you know trans ideological, where people would routinely link. Okay, here is Red Bar taking on Ethnic Kumi. Ethnic Kumi now they call him the disgraced shock jock. Question for you, Anthony. Prostitute, yeah. There's no such thing as the law. <laughs> no such thing as the law. What, what age do you stop yourself? 13. You know, there is something called the law. <laughs> just gets around it. Just 13 yeah. is where you stop yourself? 13. Holy shit. That's, that's what I'm saying. Right, it's got to be the right 13. 13. What the fuck? You've never seen a hot, hot 13 year old that is completely fuckable? I just think of your mind. Just think of the age. 13. Be honest. You've seen 13 year olds and gone, oh my god, she's 13? I, I don't know. I am fucking my brother's girlfriend's daughter. Okay, he's right. 
uh, in the sense that uh, there, there are 13-year-old girls that a, a normal guy would find attractive, all right? Just because you find a girl attractive doesn't mean that you then have sex with her or make any sort of move on her, but that's just the nature of reality. Girls are maturing faster these days. You want? I am fucking sulking. I am fucking a hot, hot 13 year old. I am fucking my brother's girlfriend's daughter. I am fucking sulking. You are? I am fucking a hot, hot 13 year old. I am fucking children. Have I had sex with? Please enlighten me. That's a child. A 17 year old with a big set of fucking tits is a child. Not as far as the New York State laws go. I am fucking my brother's girlfriend's. Okay, that's. That's repetitive. Right. Sometimes podcasts can end their friendship. Stuttering John and Artie Lang. All right. Please podcasts welcome to the stage, Arthur Lang. Ended their friendship. <laughs> what is For only 15% off. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Arthur Lang. Oh, my God. Turn his down. Turn, turn my Aren't volume down. <laughs> turn his volume no, down. No, you go ahead. We're on the air. We're rolling. Uh, that familiar hack you're hearing. <laughs> Not, co- not comedy. Hey, not comedy. Nice to here we go. Yeah, cool. here, here we comes. go, Tammy. It starts already. <laughs> oh, stuttering John. Are, are stuttering we starting? John. Is this, is it's this? we're on the air, buddy. On the air. All right. Well, look, can I just say that we're doing the Art of Lang podcast? What is it? <laughs> you want to make this official? <laughs> yes. And these, the Stuttering John podcast on iTunes and Podcast One. Love, Romance, and Other Lies with wait, 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 What are you doing? What? You're doing you're doing an official intro to your show? Well, yeah. We're some Well, why don't we tag it at the end or something? All right. Whatever. What, no, do it again. Go. Go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're here listening to the Art of Lang podcast along with... Okay, so... Stuttering John definitely didn't uh, have much of a career outside of Howard Stern. He was funny precisely because Howard Stern knew how to deploy him. So he went on to have a brief career with Jay Leno, but frequently we're all only excellent in certain contexts, right? I've depended on my guests and co-hosts to create an excellent show when I'm just left on my own resources. I can't bring it like I, I used to when I had people to bounce off of. Uh, Artie Lang, was he funny outside of Howard Stern? Did he have any career outside of Howard Stern? Now, Howard Stern is definitely not as good without Artie Lang, right? So when Artie Lang left the show, that was the that was the beginning of the end, right, for Howard Stern? The Stuttering John podcast. <laughs> that's, that's, the the, former, that's the former announcer for the The tonight. Stuttering John podcast. <laughs> Someone woo him love, away from his original John, show. Love Romance and Other Lies John, with Tammy Pescatelli. John, let me ask you something. Have you given up? Give up what? Have you? I'm trying. Have you what are you the fucking mirror? mirror? Have you looked at the fucking mirror? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your, your, your attitude here. Are you officially putting your show on the air? This is like Rocky Three. They just come out fucking pounding to the face. No, I, I, Bell. I, was that your intro to your show? No, but I just thought we should do something. So, uh, stuttering, ro- stuttering John and Adi Lang, are they, they entertaining? I will be on the end of you, Kumia. Mark my fucking words. Your last day will be because of me. Much, uh, let's do some Kumia stuff because I think this is really, really, those. really damning, right? This is, we've got some, like, this is crazy. <laughs> Anthony Kumia, of course, the host of Opie and Anthony, famous radio show, second to Howard Stern in the New York market for many years, right? Big show. They had the XM show, every comic in the world, Joe Rogan, best friends with Anthony Kumia. Anthony Kumia now, they call him the disgraced shock jock, right? <laughs> Anthony Cumia disgraced Chuck Jock because he was calling um, black people savages. Remember this when he got busted? Now, you could make, and by the way, I'd like to hire somebody to make another documentary on what Cumia has been up to for the last two years. It's time for another. This is what happened. For a while, 
Kumia was being covered like Brendan Schaub is now. And I think the uh, fighter in the kid Reddit used to be like the Opie and Anthony subreddit guys, right? Yeah. The and then original. they moved on over there. Everyone made fun of Kumi and tortured him for so long that they kind of just got bored of it. However, they've missed so much. There is nothing to be bored of. He has done his worst stuff has happened in the last couple of years. And it's been going unreported to the point where I got to get people running to Joe Rogan to tell him this. Rogan has been told about Anthony Cumia following 13-year-old girls, multiple 13-year-old girls unrelated to him on Instagram with braces, sexual pictures of these girls on their Instagram accounts. We'll show you all this. Joe Rogan has been told, and I want the world to know this. This is big. Joe Rogan has been sat down. And told, they found this stuff about Kumia. You know, this isn't the first time he's constantly getting into jams with these underage girls or very young girls. He was caught following two 13- and 14-year-old girls on Instagram. Here is the proof. Here's his lie about trying to get out of it. Joe Rogan was explained all of this. Doesn't care. Still, and we have proof that he still hung out or communicates friendly with Kumia after finding this out, which is just bizarre to me. You'd think, cut the fucking court. How many of Kumia's friends need to hear that he's an actual pedophile? It, do, are they going to wait? Okay, just because he's following some people on Instagram doesn't mean he's a pedophile. Till it's there. You know, and these are the same guys. Never talk about a man's kids unless you're raping them and you're our boss. <laughs> and I don't know if he's raping them, but dude, I he am. He wants to. Listen, here's why. I could say this, and he could bring me to court if he wants me to, because I could probably prove it if I had the time. I truly believe, and this is not a fact, it's my belief, I truly believe he is a full pedophile and has a severe sexual addiction to underage girls around the age of 12 to 14 with brain. So Red Bot does have an excellent radar. Don't know if he's correct here, but uh, Red Bot has a good radar. Races. I fully believe it. I fully believe he's done stuff with an underage girl. He took a 17-year-old girl to prom when he was a famous radio DJ. One of their listeners... Okay, that doesn't mean you're a pedophile. All right. So let's see what's going on with Deep Left Chuckle. whiteness first, and who does not identify with poor white people, the idea that somehow they are a traitor, that there is this natural... I mean, that's a spook, right? The idea that there's some kind of natural affinity that every member of a race has like if if you're bill gates you you should no no one who's a racial or ethnic or religious nationalist believes that they have an automatic affinity with every member of their group that they simply have a general affection for their group and find that the more that they have in common with people then the better you get along right so this is something that Deep Left Joko does all the time. He can't engage with people's actual arguments, let alone he can't even steel man other people's arguments so that he is engaging with the best of their arguments, right? He has to make straw men out of other people's arguments to build himself up and make himself think that, you know, he's got such cutting edge insights. Good. Prescriptively, naturally, according to the divine right of nature, you should just have this beautiful love and cherishing for, you know these poor white people who by the way i mean if you want to get into a phenotype and phrenology and physiognomy look completely different i mean i'm never going to mistake 
you know, Bill Gates and his, you want to talk about superficial appearances, never going to mistake Bill Gates for some kind of tatted up, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome, drug addicted, you know, pierced and et cetera, et cetera. It's just, there's no comparison, but people want to say, no, 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 because of some, because of this map of haplogroups and FST values, you know, he should, he should. And so he's a traitor. Well, that's just like, you're just moralizing at me. You're moralizing at Bill Gates and he doesn't care. And I don't care. No one really cares except you and your little cult of victims. Say, oh, Daddy Gates won't defend us. He won't protect us. So we're going to have a workers' revolution. We're going to have a peasant revolt. You know, basically buying communism, buying democracy, the idea of rule of the people, the idea of, you know, workers' rights and so on. It's uh, inherently contradictory. It takes the worst parts of the left, the worst parts of the right, because they're the most superficial, because they're the most propagandistic. These are people who, like, you know, think Vladimir Lenin got by because of some kind of organic workers' revolution. They don't see, you know, anything beyond that. So it is, uh, it is frustrating to see that, but, you know, it, it's something that on some level, it is kind of like the drug addiction, right? It is, it is people who are hopeless and who don't have anything to, like, relatively speaking, you can get people from all over the intelligence spectrum and you can get people who are relatively smart and whatnot, but they feel aggrieved. They feel they have nothing to lose. And so they're lashing out. And uh, so I want to get back to this original topic. Of and is there any introspection here, Ken Brown? I mean, how much does this apply to you? Right. If I had more to lose, I wouldn't be spending as much time sharing my opinions on YouTube. If you had more to lose, you wouldn't be spending as much time here on YouTube. So you make a lot of, you know, harsh criticisms of other people. Where's the introspection about where your own criticism applies to you? White privilege is a regressive tax. And what do I mean by that? I mean that um, if you're a rich white person, white privilege doesn't affect you. Affirmative action doesn't affect you. Like all of these, all of the results, like what is white privilege? White privilege says that effectively, you know, white people are going to be taxed more. Except it can in a court of law, in a court of public opinion. Right. If, if you look at the protagonists in Tom Wolfe's novels, right, from the bonfire, the vanities, the, the protagonist, all right, he paid a pretty stiff price. He had his freedom taken away. Those, that couple in St. Louis who brandished weapons as a Black Lives Matter protest, you know, surged into their gated off community. Right. So, no, rich white people sometimes pay a price. Everyone can become a victim. And, victimology is not something that you ever completely graduate from, right? We're all prone to it because in certain circumstances, we all can become victims and we can all benefit from some of victimology, creating bonds with other people, creating purpose, creating energy, creating community, right? Creating direction in life. All that springs from in-group identity, which always contains a victimology that white people are going to be denied spaces in Ivy League colleges or just colleges. In general. So white people are going to be denied educational opportunities. They're going to be denied and not just brute force either, because the white privilege narrative is, is a form of nagging. It's a form of insufferable nagging that reminds you to conform and to lie and to um, pay obeyances to and to act obsequious and to be deceitful. There's, there's like a psychological cost associated with the white privilege narrative that you know you have to go to school or you go to your job and people are going to continually do all these microaggressions against you 
They're going to talk about dead white men. They're going to talk about how white men, there's too many white people here. And, and it's just a constant um, attack on anyone who is not in on the joke, essentially. If you're not in on the joke, if you can't dissociate your identity from whiteness, if you can't say, well, first and foremost, I'm gay, or you can't say, first and foremost, I'm rich. Well, everyone has multiple identities, right? It's a very rare person who only identifies as black or white, right? People identify by their ethnic group, by their religion, by their geography, by their nation, by their profession. There are many identities. So the golden age of blogging was strongly white. To people of uh, different persuasions, you were, you were part of actually... Was your first blog at The Atlantic? Because that was a very systematized version of this. The Atlantic, you know, this was a moment where The Atlantic really made a smart move. I mean, The Atlantic is this big thing now. Before that, it was just this physical magazine facing an identity crisis as the internet hit. And what they did, uh, which was very smart, and I guess this was James Bennett in, in, in uh, you know, along with David Bradley, the owner, and others, but they, they went out and got some bloggers. The highest traffic blogger was Andrew Sullivan. And they put them, there was like just five or six of you, right? There was you, Jim Fallows, Matt Iglesias, I guess Megan McArdle, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, Andrew Sullivan. You know? A minor figure you may recall named Anahasi Coates. Ah, yes. Was he there pretty much from the beginning? I yeah. think pretty, I think pretty yeah. close to, to, because he was doing, he started doing feature pieces for us. And, and then, yeah, I mean, as I remember it, I, I was the lowest traffic of, of those people, <laughs> except for Fallows only blogged intermittently, but it was, me, Iglesias, McArdle, Coates, and then Sullivan dwarfing, dwarfing us all. So, so Jeffrey Goldberg didn't have a vertical at that point. Because see, it was like, it was so, it's so funny. Like, each of you was a vertical. In other words, you would look at the top. As I recall, there's a bar, and there's these like five or so blogs listed yep. consecutively. You can click on any one, and, and you tended to interact with one another. Uh, not only exclusively by any means. Matt interacted with Ezra Klein a lot. You probably did. Um, but... Uh, Yes. But that was the model, and it really worked big time for the Atlantic. They they, uh, they probably paid Andrew a fair amount of money to bring his traffic, and that was key. Um, but but the ideological diversity was, you know, not not that bad when you look back at it. I mean, Matt would have been considered farther left than he's considered today. Right. Uh, and right. you had you had Megan as a libertarian at a time when libertarianism was actually about to become more ascendant, uh -huh. um, and you had a more left wing coded version of Iglesias, and you had. Tanahasi before he became sort of, you know, before his before his transformation into a kind of, you know, celebrity oracle figure. Um, and he but he was left, certainly, and, um, you know, had a kind of left African American perspective that I mean, this was so this right, this was, I think, you know, a core left critique of any idealized vision of the blogosphere, right, is that it was a bunch of, you know, white guys arguing with each other, privileged white guys arguing with each other. And of mm -hmm. course it was so, you know, the, the sort of the stance from the left would say, of course it was easy for a bunch of privileged white guys to disagree, you know, to disagree amongst themselves because the stakes for them are, you know, are low. And, you know, once you get into, once you get into sort of people who are actually vulnerable, then naturally it becomes harder to have this kind of abstract, these kind of abstract arguments. That's, that's the left critique. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, it's, I mean, I haven't combed the archives of blogging heads, but certainly the blogosphere, the early blogosphere was very, very white and male, you know, sort of oh. new, new Republic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of. this is a problem for me now because, you know, I capped the blogosphere in those days. I took these people who were who were just becoming well known as as print as, you know, for writing 
but they weren't the kind of journalists who would show up on cable TV. So Blogging Heads was, was the place you could go if you wanted to see them and talk. <laughs> and so anyway, and because I because I tapped into that, uh, now when I come have these retrospective conversations, it's like all these white guys. And, you know, uh, you know, I mean, if I, I was just looking at people who showed up on Blogging Heads right before you were like uh, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, well, Megan showed up fairly early. Actually, Frank Fukuyama was on right before you, I noticed. Not, not, oh, not got, Caucasian. Got him early. Got him early. I mean, well, I was working down yeah. the chain of, you know, significance. And I'm, I hate to break this to you, Ross, but at that time. I was no, I was no Francis Fukuyama. He, he was but I, I was honored to be on the same platform as Francis yeah. Fukuyama. Weren't we all? Um, yeah, but no, I mean, Megan, Megan was a distinctive figure. You know, there's a, let's say, a historic, historical deficit of female right of center writers. Um but in that sort of internet scrum, she she definitely stood out. And it was also a case where, you know, something that's sort of now a cliche, right? That like the sort of particular abuse that women take on the internet. Um, I saw that mm -hmm. probably first with Megan because she was sort of, you know, and we were blogging together. Well, plenty of women on the internet are not subject to a ton of abuse, right? Your own persona and your own writing and your own behavior has a great deal to do with how people react to you. So. I started blogging in 1997, and by 1998, I think, oh, this is the hot new thing, and all, all the major newspapers need to start having bloggers. And I kept thinking that, I think, up until about 2005, 2006, when social media and streaming sites such as YouTube started taking off. And then I finally bought a video camera in 2007. February 2007 began making vlogs and interviewing people on on video. So I realized the future was video. Together and sort of you could see the difference between the abuse that she took and the abuse that I took, even though we were both, you know, sort of right of center, right of center young people. And in, if anything. Okay, this is an Oath Keeper blaming Richard Spencer. He joins us now live. He's the author of the upcoming book, The Propagandist, Oath Keepers and the Perils of Extremism. Jason, thanks for being with us this morning. Um, I want to take a, a step back because you are uniquely qualified to give Americans a look and a warning uh, about these organizations like the Oath Keepers. What is, for viewers who may not understand completely, what is the organizing principle of the Oath Keepers and why was that appealing to you at one point before you left the group? Well, the organizing principle really, um, it starts at a national level and that, that resides with Stuart Rhodes, who's the founder and the president. Um, then uh, he, he does have a board of directors, or did when it was intact. Um, and then there are state chapters uh, broken down even further into county chapters. Um, and uh, so it's, it's all kind of one big umbrella that uh, starts and ends with Stuart Rhodes. And what was the appeal of the message to you? What is the grievance of the Oath Keepers? Why did they storm the Capitol and why do they continue uh, to this day to threaten various election officials, politicians, media figures and others? Well, the uh, the message varies. It, it evolves over time it, and it's really driven by the conspiracy theories of the day. So, you know, back when they were first kind of starting out, it, it jumped off of the Tea Party movement. Um, then we saw the Jade Helm conspiracy theories kind of really drive some of the, the messaging that they were doing with the, the orders they won't follow. Um, we've seen that as they've radicalized more towards a, a racist bent that uh, the, they will not replace us. Um, and we saw them courting people like Richard Spencer. Um, and, and then, of course, with the, uh, the, the just bogus claims of a stolen election. So it's racist, it's anti-Semitic, they claim to be anti-tyranny. Um, 1776 is a day that you know, was posted, became a hashtag around January 6th. But what, for you back then, what was going on in your life? What was the appeal of the message that you just described? And then what made you leave? Well, I, I think there's some confusion there. I actually was never a member. I was an employee. Now, that's even worse, in my opinion, because I was, you know, putting out that propaganda. I initially started um, interacting with the Oath Keepers when uh, Bundy Ranch happened. I was an independent journalist uh, working for some online radio outlets. And I got embedded with Stuart Rhodes during the um, the Bundy Ranch standoff. Um, then I was invited back. I was uh, I drove down to Bundy Ranch with Stuart. I was invited back to the... Um, 
So the Sugar Pine Mine standoff and then the White Hope standoff. And then uh, there was a, a PR statement put out that included my name because I'd helped them out a bit. So I, I lost my day job. And uh, Stuart was there with a, a employment offer as the national media director and um, one of the associate editors on the website. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was more, it started as more of a, what he would term an educational outreach. Um, and they really uh, claimed to be not racist in those things. But we saw as he found the membership base could grow and the donations could grow, he more and more courted that alt-right as it kind of came up with Richard Spencer and, and um, others uh, in an outright racist. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of an evolution. Um, and I, I walked away because of that radicalization on the, the, the racism. I actually had walked into a conversation um, with some key, key core members and, and associates in a, a public grocery store where we were all living, where they were discussing that the Holocaust had never happened. And I just could not, I, I went back home to my wife and, you know, my, my wife's medically disabled. I got two kids that are living in a house still, two daughters. And then with, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do with the, uh, with, with the loss of the income, but it just, we, I couldn't abide it at that point. I just put in my resignation. So how did you, I mean, you're making a distinction between being a follower of the Oath Keepers, a member of the group, and just an employee of it, but certainly you heard some of the rhetoric oh, yeah, and knew no. what the Absolutely. members were up to. So how did you rationalize working for that group? Well, again, it radicalized over time. Um, you know, it started off just being kind of very anti-government and then went to the racist side. Um, you know, I've always had a healthy distrust of the government. And, uh, you know, so it, it kind of started there. But I, as things got more and more racist, I just couldn't do it. So let's talk about the links between the Oath Keepers and organizations like that and former President Trump and the people around him. Uh, from what you know from firsthand, and also if you just speak more broadly, uh, because you work for a time so intimately involved with the group. Okay, there's an article in the New York Times that I read today that uh, is called How Stop the Steal captured the American right. The movement to reinstate President Trump has gone far beyond him and now threatens the future of American elections. And there's a great anecdote here. So it talks about this woman, Erin Behrens, all right? She was a 28-year-old college-educated stay-at-home mom living in the Denver suburbs. She was deeply religious. She was fervently anti-abortion. She initially found Donald Trump vulgar and crude and cruel. But her view of him changed because of something that happened on New Year's Eve in Cologne, Germany, which jarred her understanding of the stakes of the 2016 election. So many people get into conspiracy theories and far right or far left politics when they realize that they've been lied to throughout their lives. So you see this radicalization happening with someone like uh, Godwood. So that evening, New Year's Eve 2016 in Cologne, Germany, a crowd of a thousand as 2015, a crowd of a thousand or so young men, mostly of North African and Arab descent, gathered in the square between the city's central railway station and cathedral and suddenly began sexually assaulting women who were celebrating the new year. So more than 500 sexual assault complaints were made to the police and similar incidents happened in other German cities that night. And the whole episode was essentially ignored by the mainstream media, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel, and German police, in their initial statements, played down the extent of the attacks. They wanted to avoid mention of the ethnicity of the perpetrators. So people find out they've been lied to, right? And how do you expect people are going to react when they find out they're being lied to and gaslit? So the attack and its aftermath ricocheted throughout the global far right, which argued that it confirmed two things, the threat of Muslim immigration and <clears throat> the complicity of a global elite in covering up the threat. So Phyllis Schlafly Warned, there are globalists in the world, she said. They are putting globalism above every other value. And now Donald Trump's speeches at the time had been virulently anti-immigration for months. And so Trump began denouncing the crimes in Germany. He said Hillary Clinton wants to be America's Angela Merkel. So Aaron Behrens was among those he reached. 
right? So she thought maybe we should have this guy who is strong, who will take control of the situation and correct our path. Let's save our country, save Western civilization. Then after that, we can argue about social issues all we want. So what often launches people into conspiracy theories or extreme politics are very visceral experiences that make them realize they've been gaslit and lied to throughout their lives. And often burning fever swamps of nonsense, right? Right. Often give birth to viable politics. And often out of, you know, delusional claims, all right, out of absurd conspiracy theories comes a viable politics. So look at the rise of the new right in Dallas between, say, 1945 and 1965. That's the subject of a new book. And so people in this new right in Dallas, they started compiling evidence about the nefariousness of the national government. Right? And you can read this in Edward Miller's new book, Nut Country, Right-Wing Dallas and the Birth of the Southern Strategy. So the Republicans came to dominate the South beginning in the 1968 election. This book came out in 2015. Nut Country, Right-Wing Dallas and the Birth of the Southern Strategy. So these people comprising the new angry right were gathering evidence of all sorts of treason by the American government. Right? They imputed all sorts of sinister intent into America's leading politicians. And there was the John Birch Society. Right? They published a book called The Politician about President Eisenhower claiming he was a communist and had more than 100 pages of footnotes for a completely nonsensical claim. But out of nonsense often comes things that are formidable. Right? So apocalyptic religion about the end of days, right? out, of, out of failed predictions and movements that become energized with false claims about the end of the world, there's an energy that becomes released and there become communities that are built out of that that develop real-world significance. So one of the most famous of the conspiracy theories that drove the new right in Dallas and other centers in America in the 60s was that fluoridation of drinking water was a communist plot to impair Americans' health. And there were all these communist plots that were subverting the education system and warping the minds of children and adults so that they'd support leftist causes and the communists were infiltrating the U.S. government. And so from, from the perspective of 2022, much of this seems nonsensical. And you, you may regard the, the religious right as a destruction distraction from the issues that most confront us. But maybe the religious right and these seeming crazies were fighting for us through proxy battles, right? So the, the birth of the far right in Dallas in the 1960s became wildly successful. It had grassroots organizing, often led by women, often funded by wealthy people, and backed by a massive amount of metapolitical content creation, and they went on to change the minds of thousands. So the Dallas far right of 1945 to 1965 created a completely new social order. It helped roll roll back or at least challenge some of the civil rights movement. And so I'm not a big fan of Stop the Steal and some of the other, what I regard as nonsensical conspiracy theories on the right. But out of this nonsense may come greatness, may come important, viable political issues.
yeah, that's really all there is to it, right? You know, so if that's the case, if you want to understand politics, not from a reactive passive stance, but from an active creative stance, if you're actually interested in impacting politics and in changing the world, if that's your true goal, which people will say that it is, but they're liars, liars on the right. People I talk to every day, they claim, yeah, you know, I'm in 20 Discord servers and, you know, I spend about four hours a day watching political uh, content in between my porn addiction and, you know, uh, I don't really have anything going for me, don't have a job, living with my parents right now, you know, not willing to do anything radical, like, you know, I believe, you know, <laughs> people tell me, they say, I believe in hierarchy. It's like, okay, are you going to church? Well, not really right now. I kind of, I disagree with all the churches and their particular way of doing things, and I think my way is right. But the irony is so thick that it makes me sick. These people make me sick because they are sick, right? Like, you are sick. It's just, that's just how it is. I'm sorry. And you can be honest, and honesty is empowering. Honesty is vicious. People are offended. People are upset. People are annoyed when I point these things out. People say, no, 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 I want a comfortable pat on the back. No, I'm participating in politics. I'm going to change the world. I'm a, I'm a leader. <laughs> I'm going to save the white race in Western civilization. Ew. I donate to the Patreon. I send the super chats. You know? I'm part of history, and we're going to win. We're still going to win, and God is on our side. It's sick. It's twisted. It's sad. It's pathetic. You know, none of that is true. Yeah, some good analysis there from Ken Brown. So... The studying race differences lead the truth to of genetic differences, racism. no matter what, the, like between groups, is is a painful, harmful, potentially potentially dangerous thing. So let me ask you to this question: Whether it's bell curve or any research on race differences, can that be used to increase the amount of racism in the world? Can that be used to increase the amount of hate in the world? Do you think about this kind of stuff? I've thought about this a lot, not as a scientist, but as a person. Um, and my sense is there is such enormous reservoirs of hate and racism that have nothing to do with scientific knowledge of the data that speak against that, that no, I, I don't, I don't want to give racist groups a veto power over what scientists study. If you think that the differences, and by the way, virtually no one disagrees that there are differences in, in scores. It's all about what causes them and how to fix it. So if you think this is a cultural problem, then you must ask the problem what... Okay, so it makes the point that people who study the topic realize there are very significant differences between people. Some peoples are more intelligent than other peoples. Some peoples have stronger family lives. Some, some groups seem to be better adapted to capitalism. Right? Other groups have shorter lifespans. Others tend to have longer lifespans. And that many of these differences kind of group together. The people who have longer lifespans tend to be more intelligent, tend to be more productive, tend to be harder working, tend to have more solid family lives. Those groups with shorter lifespans tend to be less intelligent, commit vastly higher rates of crime, and to be much more sexually promiscuous and afflicted by sexually transmitted diseases. Do you want to, ch do you want to change anything about the culture? Or are you okay with the culture because you don't feel it's appropriate to change a person's culture? So are you okay with that and the fact that that may lead to disadvantages in, in school achievement? It's a question. If you think it's environmental, what are the environmental parameters that can be fixed? I'll tell you one: lead in, you know, lead from gasoline in the atmosphere, lead in paint, lead in in water. That's an environmental toxin that society has the means to eliminate, and they should. Yeah, just to sort of trying to find some uh, insights and conclusion to this very difficult topic. Uh, is there 
been research on environment versus genetics, nature versus nurture, on this question of race differences? There is not, no one wants to do this research. It's, first of all, it's hard research to do. Second of all, it's, it's a minefield. No one wants to spend their career on it. Tenured people don't want to do it, let alone students. Um, the way I talk about it, I, well, before I tell you the way I, I talk about it, I want to say one more thing about Jensen. He was once asked by a journalist straight out, are you a racist? His answer was very interesting. His answer was, I've thought about that a lot, and I've concluded it doesn't matter. This, now, I, I know what he meant by this. The guts to say that. Wow. He was a very unusual person. I think he had yeah. a touch of Asperger's syndrome, to tell you the truth, because yeah. I, I saw him in many circumstances. He would be canceled on Twitter immediately oh, with that sentence. Yeah. But what he, <laughs> what he meant was he had a hypothesis. Yeah. And with respect to group differences, he called it the default hypothesis. He said, whatever factors affect individual intelligence are likely the same factors that affect group differences. It was... And the reason that question doesn't matter is because there's no such thing as racist, right? This is a brand new moral category that, that didn't exist before the 20th century. It wasn't, wasn't even referred to until the 1930s, didn't become prevalent until the 1960s. It's this invented moral category. So yeah, racist refers to nothing in reality. There's no such moral sin as racism. It's the default, but it's, yeah. it was a hypothesis. It should be tested. And if it turned out, empirical test didn't support the hypothesis. He was happy to move on to something else. He was absolutely committed to that scientific ideal that, that it's an empirical question. We should look at it and let's see what happens. The scientific method cannot be racist from his perspective. It doesn't matter what the scientists, if they, if they follow the scientific method, it doesn't matter what they believe. And if they are biased and they consciously or unconsciously bias the data, other people will come along to yes. replicate it, they will fail, and the process over time will work. So let me push back on this idea because psychology to me is full of gray areas. And what I've observed about psychology, even replication crisis aside, is that something about the media, something about journalism, something about the, the virality of ideas in the public sphere, they misinterpret. They take up things from studies, uh, willfully or from ignorance, misinterpret findings and tell narratives around that. I personally believe, for me, I'm not saying that broadly about science, but for me, it's my responsibility to anticipate the ways in which findings will be misinterpreted. So I've had, I thought about this a lot because I published papers on uh, semi-autonomous vehicles and uh, those, you know, cars, people die in cars. There's people that have written me letters saying, emails, nobody writes letters, <laughs> I wish they did, uh, that I have blood in my hands because of things that I would say, positive or negative, there's consequences. In the same way, when you're a researcher of intelligence, I'm sure you might get emails, or at least people might believe that a finding of your study uh, is going to be used by a large number of people to increase the amount of hate in the world. I think there's some responsibility on scientists, but for me, I think there's a great responsibility uh, to anticipate the ways things will be misinterpreted. And there you have to, first of all, decide whether you want to say a thing at all, do the study at all, publish God, the study at all. And to it? the words with which Just you shut up and it. get to the point. It's, uh, I find this on Twitter a lot, actually, which is oh. what I think the data don't mean. I don't do very much on Twitter other than to retweet uh, references to papers. Yes. I don't think it's my role to explain these because they're complicated. They're nuanced. But when you decide not to do a scientific study because you're, or not to publish a result because you're afraid the result could be, could be harmful or insensitive, that's not an unreasonable thought. And people will make different conclusions and decisions about that. I wrote about this. I wrote, uh, I, I'm the editor of a journal called Intelligence, which, published, which publishes scientific papers. Sometimes we publish papers on group differences. Those papers sometimes are controversial. These papers are written for a scientific audience. They're not written for the Twitter audience. I don't promote them very much on, on, on Twitter. Um, 
but in a scientific paper, you have to now choose your words carefully also because those papers are picked up uh, by non-scientists, by writers of various kinds, and you have to be available to discuss what you're saying and what you're not. Okay, let's get some Nick Fuentes. Green, he's in some kind of green pool. Hunter Biden is currently in the back rooms. Hunter Biden has been transported to a liminal space right now. Everybody's complaining and crying. Well, the president's son can't just be having sex with his niece and and uh, and on drugs all the time. And and he's just in a liminal space at the moment with an ambient green lighting. So I don't really see what the fuss is. They're they're Kino. I don't care what you say. The Biden family is Kino. You know, you can say whatever you want, but they're Kino, okay? And if you disagree, it's kind of like a bitch energy. No offense, but if you disagree with that, it's kind of like a bitch energy. <laughs> He's smoking crack. You know, imagine like being so uptight about that. Um it's Kino. Sorry. Some things are just some things are just based and you just either you get it or you don't. <laughs> I think my since you know, I'm the religious and, logging, Robert and, you know, and sort of socially conservative, you would think I would take certain kinds of abuse, but in fact her her sex attracted a certain kind of a certain kind of attack that yeah. She had some serious haters. Uh, serious, serious, serious haters in ways. Uh, maybe it wasn't just her sex, right? Maybe there were things that she was writing, ways she was conducting herself that played a role in how other people... That male libertarians her. did not. Um, but Coates uh, was, I, I think, sort of a contrast to that. Like his his blogging for The Atlantic was very much, and this was part of his success too, right, was that he clearly was bringing a perspective to that landscape that was not encompassed by, um, you know, white guys and white Jewish guys, right? Um, but, but with his presence, I think, yeah, you could say we had a, 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 pretty, a pretty distinct, small op-ed page. Yeah. And he was on Blogging Heads a couple of times. I mean, he, he became so in demand that he, he, he became what we call a tough get in the narrow casting business. Um, but uh, he had some great conversations. The, uh, so are you, uh, I mean, in terms of golden ages of things, if I look back further, pre-internet, like late 80s, early 90s at the New Republic. Initially, Mike Kinsley's the editor. I would say the same thing. We had serious arguments. We seriously engaged arguments. Mike was particularly good about insisting that you confront the best version of their argument. And uh, But that was the culture of the small kind of intellectual magazines. Yep. And, and you and I both agree that uh, the situation is somewhat different. Now, look, there's a lot of good stuff and serious engagement out there, but, but our consciousness seems so dominated by Twitter uh, that uh, we also see just a lot of, not just kind of garbage, but reward, garbage rewarded, like the incentive structure. Right. The incentive structure of social media is that the more inflammatory you are, the more engagement you'll get, the more enraging your content, the more engagement you'll get. And people primarily will want to follow you if you tell them what they want to hear. So right after the 2020 presidential election, I, I made a tweet detailing uh, some of the ways that the Trump will likely try to fight what seems to be a, a losing result. And, and suddenly I, I got like a hundred new subscribers, but uh, that didn't last long because I then turned my attention to debunking 
voter fraud claims and lost all those subscribers. So if you want to build a big Twitter following or a big following on social media or on YouTube or develop a pundit career, you need to tell your particular audience what it wants to hear, right? You need to repeat certain talking points and make them feel happy and comfortable by reinforcing their prejudices. Sure. If your goal is to amass followers and hence influence, the incentive structure seems to encourage something other than uh, rigorous intellectual honesty and accurate characterization of alternative arguments and so on. I, I, I don't mean it's, it's not there, but, but, but this is all a run up to asking you, like, if, you, if, you, if I'm right that you kind of agree with that assessment and correct me if you don't, um, are you optimistic about this just being kind of a pendulum swing and things maybe uh, somehow? So this is some serious discussion there. Like this is discussion on a 120 IQ level. Oh man. So the Nick Fuentes video that I was going to play, that's God, right? That's, but Fuentes, that's discussion on the like 100 to 105 IQ level. Now, once we adjust to the, the sheer technological change, things getting better in that, along that dimension? Um, I mean, I think, I think there is some self-correction. And uh, Laponia says a big following requires one to be a one-issue man. Yes, it means that you hit a particular niche over and over again. So Adam Schefter, right, he's huge for breaking sports scoops, right? If he started talking about religion or philosophy, right, his millions of Twitter followers would help be happy. That, that happens. There is some pendulum swinging. Um, I think that the atmosphere, and, and you also have to deal with exogenous factors, right? Like, you know, the sort of, the the world the world gets calmer at some moments and crazier at others and you know the crazier the world the harder it is to stay sane in argument with that being said you know had you had twitter during the iraq war right which is the backdrop to this golden age of blogging that we're discussing mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. would have been truly truly crazy right um i think i think that's clear so i i don't think you can say oh you know trump made things crazy now it's not the tech yeah i mean trump trump created a certain kind of crazy. so let me say you brought up culture and of course part of your identity as a, as a columnist, is that you are a religious conservative, and 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 culture, you know, is a big, uh, is a big issue with religious conservatives, right? I, I mean, there there's, I, I think they are more inclined to say, for example, politics is downstream from culture than than maybe secular uh, conservatives or liberals are. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's something it's something that's talked about a lot. I, I and I I kind of all I guess all I'm saying is it occurred to me that maybe that's one reason. Well. I, I don't know. I don't know I, this is not leading to a question. Let, let me let me let me give you a question. I was I was something closer to a question. And then yeah, Robert Wright is really a terrible interviewer. I mean, he's a smart guy, and he sometimes has interesting things to say, but he's annoying because he's so rude and interrupting his guests. And then he's just a terrible interviewer, going on these lengthy digressions. Generally speaking, the shorter your question, the better. If you want to comment on what I just said, you can. And that is just, I think, a real, um, I think the New York Times was lucky to have you when Trump hit, because you, you are not a Trumpist, but there's something about the kind of conservative you are, maybe just about how astute you are or something, that gives you, I think, insight into Trumpism that some conservatives don't have, uh, or at least... So, Russ doubt that is like a publicly acceptable version of Steve Saylor defying evil or something um do you has, has it occurred has this occurred Shut to you is this Robert. i doubt it's news to you that god yeah i mean I, I don't I, I wouldn't i wouldn't claim to be particularly acute i i would say though that i yeah i i occupy a slightly different position in my relationship to 
conservatism and the Republican Party um, than do a lot of people who end up as conservative representatives of conservatism in mainstream media. Um, the the typical person, whether they're on CNN or writing on the Washington Post op-ed page or somewhere else, who sort of so I, I think Russ doubt that is among the top three most important pundits around today. So I'd go with Steve Saylor, Ann Coulter, then uh, Ross Douthat. Conservatives, certainly in the days of 15 years ago, you know, they were likely to be an economic and foreign policy conservative first and a social conservative sort of secondarily. Um, and they were, so therefore they they had, you know, a set of commitments to conservatism that... And media hits came up with a $20 super chat so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. He says, you are not the boss of the situation. The situation is the boss of you. Here is a short video on mental health. I am intrigued. Let's see what hey, it has to say. You guys, I don't want to be like narcissistic or whatever, but the reason I'm so picky about the men that I want to invite into my life for a relationship is because I have my life together. Knock on wood, anything can happen. I have my life together physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I don't take any medications for blood pressure or cholesterol. I don't need it. I don't, I've never taken medication for anxiety, ADD, or depression. I've never had any of that. I, um, I don't have any addictions. I can handle a glass of wine without losing control. Um, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> like, All right. I'm going to say that the title of this video is nonsense. Anyone can achieve physical and mental and emotional health, but most don't want it. All right? No. People are genetically predisposed to all sorts of things. Your genetics is going to have far more to do with your physical, mental, and emotional health than anything else. So this notion that anyone can achieve physical, mental, and emotional health, but most don't want it, is absolutely absurd. Not even in in the possibility of truth. Right? This is a self-centered, self-absorbed person who may be blessed with certain genetic advantages, who gives herself the credit, who pats herself on the back for what she lucked into. I am reasonably intelligent. I have my finances in order and I, my life is in order. And there are so many people whose lives are not in order. I have my own things that I deal with. I sometimes, um, I'm a little too guarded around men. It's something I'm working on. Um, I haven't been in a relationship in a really long time, but I would like to be in one. And I would like to see more men step it up. And the reason I posted those videos of me today at the beach Okay, so maybe you don't have quite as much physical, mental, and emotional health as, as you think you do, right? What, what I'm hearing from you is a fear of genuine human connection. And the primary source of energy and joy and happiness and thriving and effectiveness is being connected, deeply connected with other people. Is, um, you know, I haven't shown you guys my body because I want to be modest, but I did it today with the intention of showing you that I'm really fit. I'm five, two and a half. I'm petite. Um, you guys don't know about my nice bubble butt. Okay. People don't really care that much about how fit a 60 year old woman is and, and what a nice bubble butt she has. All right. The, the, the number of men who are particularly interested in that is very tiny. So she's. She's living in a world of delusion. But uh, that's what guys love to see me for. And my point is they love my bubble butt. But um, that's why I can charge $500 an hour, okay, for men of all ages. And the reason I showed you that is because I look at the men around me and I'm like, you're not at my level. You're not at my level. And so she's a hooker? She's charging $500 an hour? 
Um, one thing I'm really passionate about is if more people would work on their physical, mental, and emotional health, they would not only enjoy their own lives more, but they would be more attractive for a relationship. People are not expecting more out of a relationship. It's not like a woman needs the breadwinner. Like, you've got to have something to bring to the table. All right. The primary thing that you'll bring to a relationship is your genetics and early childhood, right? Things that you have no control over, right? Two-thirds of the population is basically sane, right? Two-thirds of the population relates to people who are good and kind to them by getting closer to such people. And when people are bad to them, they flee such people, all right? So about two-thirds of the population has secure attachment and it has nothing to do with them striving for physical, mental, and emotional health. It's just something that was given to them by genetics and their childhood. The table and good physical, mental, and emotional health are just basic things. A lot of people struggle with their physical health through no fault of their own, but a lot of times it's caused by mental, uh, by lack of good lifestyle. Like if you're overweight, you're gonna have a- We don't really know, right? We don't really know what the effect of diet is because you can't test diet. Uh, on people for long periods of time because you have no idea what they're actually eating. They may tell you they're eating X, Y, Z, right? There are just a ton of things about health that we don't really know. A lot of health issues from back pain, hip pain, knee pain, um, diabetes, uh, heart problems, breathing problems, sleeping problems, sinus congestion, all the stuff, in, improper gut health, all of these issues. And um, if you were raised in a neglectful childhood, you're going to have anxiety and depression, ADD, which you can heal through therapy, which you can heal through lifestyle. So I'm telling you, I am fortunate that I had a pretty good childhood, not ideal, but it was good enough, apparently. But anybody can be at my level of physical, mental, and emotional health. And I'm not saying that to be That's like a show nonsense. off, but it's just true because I look around That's me, I'm like, I look nonsense. at women my age and they're not as fit as I No, no, not anyone can be at your level of health, all right? You were given a gift. I am. And I look at men my age, and today I saw some at the beach in Pacific Beach. So she pays but that gives me the confidence. Like, you got to be at my level, or I'm just coach. not interested in um, dating you, okay? That's it. Um, and one thing that I've had to work sex. on is to um, expect more. Expect more without being guarded. Yeah, so I hope you guys will check out my video, and I hope you guys will realize that all of you can be physically, mentally... That's absolute nonsense. Okay, after 25 years of marriage, Shahazad, mother of three, files for divorce and embarks on a powerful journey of desire, love, and sexual liberation. Her memoir takes us on her riveting ride as she lets go of her inhibitions and explores her relationship to her body, desire, and sexuality. What I did for sex and what it can do for you is a woman's courageous story about healing old wounds, discovering a pleasure, and claiming lust. This is a rewrite of the F list intended to appeal to people who need a softer introduction and uh, book cover. Gee, thanks. For some of them, at least, like a figure like Max Boot, right? Who was, you know, sort of, in a way, famously conservative, right? In, in, in the Bush era, given the definitions of conservatism then. But once Trump comes along and sort of cuts away the parts of conservatism that Max Boot liked, right? Like, you know, starting a lot of war basically um or uh, let me let me rephrase that a kind of a kind no, of no i like um, i like that I, I, I know you i know you like that but we don't pander <laughs> here a kind of um right-wing wilsonian view of america as a liberal empire let's say right that was associated with to some extent with reagan but he was more of a dove than people people realized but certainly with george w bush the sort of neoconservatism and its high tide so trump trump undercuts all of that shows that lots of conservatives never cared you know never primarily cared about that stuff and then it's easy for max boot to essentially move to the center left right? Because those were his commitments. You can have those commitments and be on the center left. There are plenty of center left hawks, even if they're not as hawkish as Max Boot. Um, 
they like the UN more than he does. But you know, there's there's a place there's a place there's a place for him, right? Um, and that that wasn't so that woman apparently is is a coach, right? So she's the the ple- pleasure coach, right? Five hundred dollars. How committed are you to working with a therapist or coach? What brings you here? A coaching session. Yeah, uh, color me skeptical about her efficacy. True for me. If you're, you know, if you're for life, you know, if you're a religious conservative, you know, you, I, you can vote for Democrats, but you're never going to see yourself as being at home in even even on the center, even on the centrist part of mm-hmm. contemporary liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. So, if you're alienated from conservatism, you're essentially homeless. Um, and so, I think that that alone gave me a distinct perspective on the Trump era. I was not for Trump, but. I couldn't sort of just, I couldn't integrate into center left opinion in the way that right. some never Trump people could. But then also, you know, going back to the mid 2000s, I and some other people had a, you know, this sort of populist critique of the Republican Party on economics that, you know, that Trump very clearly played into and leaned into and exploited, right? This sort of discontent among working class conservatives. With- I remember when Dennis Prager was quite taken aback that someone named Ross Douthat was becoming the New York Times conservative columnist because Dennis said, I have never heard of this guy. Is- a politics of, you know, free trade deals with China and capital gains tax cuts, right? Mm. And that, that was sort of my policy shtick at the time when I was on blogging heads and when I was sort of making my way eventually to the Times. And so there too, even if I didn't like Trump himself... The- so I think Russ that was best known prior to moving to the New York Times for opposing the 2003 Iraq invasion. The fact that he was, you know, sort of speaking to exactly the kind of discontents and problems that I had spent five to ten, by the time he ran, it was ten years writing about meant that I just automatically had more sympathy for right-wing populism than mm. a lot of, again, a lot of sort of center-right opinion opinion makers. And so when you put yeah. those things together, I think it, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's given me a, you know, a different vantage point on the Trump era than like my colleague, Brett Stevens, right? Like Brett and I, we are both clearly, you know, clearly right of center, but we're right of center in very different ways. And, you know, Brett is more hawkish and socially liberal and I'm more dovish and populist and socially conservative. And so we overlap in certain ways. If we write a critique of the left, it will mm-hmm. sound similar. Um, but our attitude in the Trump era, the way we've written about it, have been very different. So Ross Douthat's latest book is about his struggle with uh, what's that that tick syndrome where you get eaten, bit by a tick and, and he's just been uh, immobilized largely by chronic fatigue syndrome for for about fifteen years. Largely, yeah. Well, been. in a way, the closest thing to clear antecedent to Trumpism and immediate antecedent in American politics is is Pat, Pat Buchanan, yeah. right? Um, a Catholic conservative like you, I, I wouldn't say you, know, you came off as a Buchananite before uh, Trump, disease, but yeah. uh, I take your point that there, there are things you, you share with Buchanan years. by virtue of being uh, a Catholic conservative that uh, that intersect in, in the Venn diagram with Trumpism. Now, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say among the things I wouldn't say you clearly shared with Buchanan was uh, a kind of aversion to uh, American military commitment overseas or, or, or I, I thought of you as being a little bit hawk. I've been more likely to oppose foreign interventions than support them overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I was via- So Andrew Morans from The New Yorker was interviewing Steve Saylor for hours. And Andrew Morans asked him, what's the, the main difference between the biological right, right? People, the biodiversity, human biodiversity right is embodied by people like Steve Saylor and Greg Cochran and regular conservatives. And Saylor said, well, biggest difference would be embodied by the war on Iraq, right? People in the HBD crowd were strongly opposed to invading Iraq in 2003. Regular conservatives were 
strongly for it. And uh, Andrew Morantz lost interest in that conversation right after that because he was trying to slam white nationalists and uh, people with an interest in human biodiversity when Steve Saylor pointed out that the HBD crowd were strongly opposed to the 2003 Iraq invasion while regular Republicans were all gung-ho for it. That's where Morantz lost interest and uh, didn't bother to quote that insight from Saylor. Vehemently against the Libya war, um, <laughs> that which, you know, I, I, again, I'm not like primarily a foreign policy writer, so I, I, I some people will sometimes be surprised at this, but I wrote like five columns about what a disaster was going to be <laughs> at the time that actually held up quite well. Um, you know, and then in, in a case like Ukraine, I, I basically, my, my view was that, you know, we, once it became clear that Russia was likely to invade, that we should, you know, send, you know, sort of make things difficult for Russia, but should not expect. I, I wrote a column basically called How to Retreat from Ukraine. It was mm. not a popular, not a popular column with So, yeah, Ross Douthat is not a scintillating speaker and not necessarily an exciting writer, but his work stands up pretty well over the years. It may get more popular as time goes by. We'll see. But, well, uh, right, but this is, I think, where, where I'm distinct, like, basically, once it became, became clear to me that, not to me, but once it became clear that Ukraine was capable of resisting and would not simply fold the way the government in Kabul did, mm-hmm. then I became a sort of a sort of limited hawk, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm a I'm not where like Glenn Greenwald is. I'm not where, you know, the sort of or some sort of Trumpy sort of very Trumpy figures on the right were like, oh, this is just the military industrial complex doing its work. I think I think the Biden administration has been correct in its support. Um but then I'm also like way more worried about nuclear escalation than Max Boot or Ann Applebaum or or these kind of writers. And I spend a lot of my time still arguing with them. And I I'm sort of a Ukraine hawk on a three to six month timeline. Um, which with, with the assumption that we're not going to defeat or dismember Russia and that regime change in Russia is an, is an unwise goal um, to set. Okay. But, then, but then too, I'm, I'm also, you know, I, part of the reason I'm not a full-tilt Ukraine hawk is that I do think we should be supporting and trying to defend Taiwan, right? So that's, that again, is not, it's, not, it's not sort of paleo-isolationist. No. It's more Scowcroft, Scowcroftian realism, I think. Okay. Um, so on, on Trump, um... I mean, it's, you know, it's not an original insight to say that Trumpism is not unrelated to globalization. Uh, so uh, I don't think I'm breaking new ground there. Um, I, I do have what I think is a kind of unusual take on that, though, which is that, uh, well, I, I, I think kind of there's no going back from globalization other than uh, I think other than I wouldn't go so far as the apocalypse. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess I think let me put it this way. I think technology creates so many non-zero-sum problems among nations, you know, things they have to solve together. Climate change is one. I, I think there's a bunch that people just don't pay any attention to that are very real. Uh, lots of arms races, space, cyber, bio, uh, and things that like AI, human genetic engineering, that if they don't work out rules of the road will become, in fact, arms races. And uh, that's just me. But but I, I want to say that I, I don't see a... a, a a safe, you know, stable, prosperous future that doesn't involve a lot of cooperation among nations. And, and I actually think economic engagement among nations strengthens, you know, creates a strong platform for this kind of cooperation. So I don't see some kind of return to, you know, uh, to uh, nationalist economics, I guess you might say. I mean, I mean, my, my view is, uh, on the other hand, I think that the, that the, the grievances of Trump's support, you know, th- does that make sense to you? By legitimate, I mean, there are, there are these real grievances. Actionary. The most reactionary figure is trying to effectively build something new, right? You know, you're you're always any any kind of yeah, and any kind of return is basically trying to sort of reach back into the past for something in order to construct something fundamentally new in in the present. And this is you know, you go to Joseph de Maistre and the reactionaries after the French Revolution. They're totally open about this. They're like, yeah, there's no going back to the Amistad regime. We're not restoring the Amistad regime. We are you know, we are we are 
restorationists in order to create create something new. Um, so yeah, there's no there's nothing sort of in pure politics of nostalgia that's worth claiming. Um, I mean, I think there's I, I think my current expectation is not that globalization ever goes into reverse, but that there is a certain kind of stall to the process that could be with us for a while, where you know you you develop a sort of you know it's not clear exactly what form these sort of ecosystems or blocks will take. Um, but you know you have sort of zones of increasing interpenetration. You know, U.S. U.S. and Europe and the Pacific Rim, Russia and China, you know, and Central Asia, right? And and in those, but but then there's sort of less, um, you know, it, it becomes a more complicated thing to outsource American jobs to China, and already like sort of changing conditions in China have made that made that more complicated to begin with, right? But or to, to take a sort of superficial but also important area like pop culture, right? Like China now has its own really strong domestic film industry, and we've gone from a world where China was just flooded with American movies to a world where China restricts how many American movies come in, and some still come in. But China has its own sort of, you know, the sort of Chinese cinema. It's not just sort of it's derivative in certain ways of American pop culture, but it's not just like American pop culture as far as far as the eye can mm -hmm. see. Um, so I think there's some of some of that has already happened and will sort of continue to happen. The model, the, the way the Chinese demonstrated that you could have the internet without having an open internet, I think, is something that certainly Russia, potentially India, like potentially the Middle East are going to sort of imitate. So just in terms of sort of information flows, there's mm -hmm. going to be more sort of spheres and firewalls than people anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. Um, domestically, I mean, you know, there's a reason that the smartest pro-Trump intellectuals have sort of come around to revisiting industrial policy, basically, um, because it, it seems like a way to say, okay, we're not just going to sort of, you know, we're, we're going to have new trade policies and we're going to have some tariffs and restrictions and these kinds of things. But fundamentally, we need sort of state-led reinvestment mm -hmm. in regions of America that have done badly under, under, current, under current conditions. Um, and that's linked to a sort of foreign policy competition vision linked to ideas of American independence and self-sufficiency. I think to the extent there's a strong case for it, it's more sort of about these kind of issues of social cohesion and domestic, domestic harmony, right? That like the big, the big error of neoliberalism in its sort of second phase, if you take like Reagan and Thatcher as the first phase and then sort of Clinton to Obama as the second phase, right? The error in the second phase was basically to say, you know, it's, we're, we're, just, we're just measuring rising GDP. Mm -hmm. These free trade gives you rising GDP. Therefore, there will be enough money to redistribute to, from the winners to the losers. But if all of the winners are in the Acela Corridor and, you know, Northern California and college towns and big cities, and all of the losers are in like five to 10 big, important states, right? And, the, you know, and the winners are people who are already winning and the losers are people who are under social strain um, and cultural strain as it was, then it's not just a simple matter to say, oh, well, well we're going to redist redistribute a bit um, because that's, you know, part of it is people, people want, you know, they want healthy communities. They want, mm -hmm. you know, well-paying mm -hmm. jobs. This is a problem the Democrats have run into repeatedly in sort of Rust Belt states. Democrats say, well, we're going to spend more on Medicaid than the Republicans. And that's popular. People, people do want to spend more on Medicaid. But what people fundamentally want is not Medicaid. Right? Mm -hmm. They fundamentally want jobs and stable families. And that's a big part, especially in the opioid era of what they've lost. Now, I don't know at all if there is a policy solution to that. I, I mean, I... Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.